The Bible is a relationship book that gives us instructions about how to relate to God and others. The more relationship principles we know and apply, the better off our relationships will be. This message is the 10th in the series, Relate. The message is entitled, Repair the Damage. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. One of the things we realize when we study the Bible is that the Bible truly is a relational book. We've talked quite a bit about that over the last several weeks when Jesus was asked by a man one day, what's the most important commandment of all the commandments? Jesus' response was, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, learn to love God and make sure you love Him with all your being, and then learn to love your neighbor just like you love yourself. So translate your love for God into love for one another. And the whole law, Jesus said, is wrapped up in this relationship with God and relationship one with another. Now, part of our spiritual growth and growth involves learning how to relate to God. How do you and I love Him? And that's part of what it means to study your Bible and to learn the things we learn together in church and your own personal study and growth in God's Word, how you love Him more and let Him love you more. But then also we have to learn how to love one another because they're practical skills and gifts and abilities that we're able to develop as a part of our interaction with each other. And one of those things involves learning how to fix broken relationships. If you don't know how to fix broken relationships, you're missing a vital element of this thing called spiritual growth in the relational realm of life. And so today I'm going to talk to you about two things uh, regarding this whole idea of repairing broken relationships. And the first thing I want you to remember today uh, in this lesson together, this, by the way, is a lesson that you can apply marriage and family. You can apply it in friendships. You can apply it on the job, in your work environment. Any, any place where you're interacting with people, you can apply this particular message today. The first thing I want you to know is that relationship damage is inevitable, but it's not ignorable. It is inevitable, but it is not ignorable. What I mean by that is this. Anytime you have a relationship with someone, at some point in time, there are going to be challenges along with that relationship, every relationship in life. In fact, life in and of itself can be painful at times, can't it? And the reason that we have pain in the world that we live in is because it's a broken world. It's a world that is filled with us as sinners, and because we are sinners and sinful, we not only hurt God, but sometimes we actually hurt one another, and our sin toward God has consequences with the people around us, and so we're not perfect as people, and so because of that, we actually hurt one another, and sometimes that hurt can be very, very deep and very painful on the inside, but it's extremely important to understand that it is inevitable. Part of the reason that's important is because it will help you not to feel so badly about something going on in a relationship in your life, because often we think when something's going wrong in one of our relationships that this is just so awful, it's terrible. Nobody else has a problem like we do. No one has the marriages, marriage challenges that we have or the friendship issues we have, and we can make it very personal until we realize everybody has problems. Isn't that great to know? We all have problems. We all struggle at times. I can tell you, I've been married, my wife and I, for 37 years and there have been moments and times that we, that we had tension points and have tension points in our relationship that we have to learn to resolve, we have to learn to work through. And just being a Christian doesn't make you immune to all those kind of issues that you face in life. It's inevitable. But, listen closely, it's not ignorable. When you have a relationship problem, it's very important that you don't ignore it. And the sooner you can fix it, the better. 
It's like having a, maybe a damaged roof in your house. And many times, maybe if you have a damaged roof, it starts out with just a small little leak and only leaks whenever it rains really hard. And so the tendency is to say, oh, it's not really a big problem. We'll just, we're not going to really worry about it. It's just only, it only leaks when it's just a hard rain. But if you leave it alone and, and you don't address it and fix it, before long the leak gets worse and it's leaking more often and then it leaks with every rain and then sometimes a great rain comes and it floods your house because you didn't address it when it was little. And so you and I must understand the importance, the value, the significance of addressing things as quickly as possible because when relationship pain happens to us, it actually causes hurt in our heart. And your heart is the most delicate part of your being and the most important part of your being. Whatever happens here is going to affect every part of your life. If you have hurt in your heart and anger in your heart and those kinds of things happening inside of you, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Take a look at what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. In fact, why don't we all read this together, all the folks in Frederick, Gaithersburg as well. Let's read aloud and loudly. Proverbs 4, 23, here we go. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Look at that verse. Above all else, that is, above anything else you can pay attention to, make sure you're paying attention to your heart, that you're guarding your heart. Why? Because it is the wellspring of life. That is, your well is going to feed whatever is coming from it. We have a well at our house, and one of the things that we've had to do from time to time is have the water tested to make sure that the water is pure and appropriate for drinking, because if it gets poisoned in any way, we're, we're consuming that. It's affecting our health, and the same is true for your heart. It's like a well. If you allow hurt and anger and bitterness and those kind of things to get inside of you, it will not only affect you, but it affects the people that you feed, the people around you. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, again, describes the seriousness of the this situation. Notice Paul's words inspired by the Holy Spirit. In your anger, that is when you're angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. The Bible says that if you don't handle your hang anger the right way, you can actually open up your life to poison. You can open up your life to oppression. You can allow the enemy to have a stronghold there. Hebrews 12 verse 15 is a very descriptive passage as well that reminds us of this significant event that happens in our heart if we don't handle hurt the right way. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Let me stop there for a moment. None of us want to miss God's grace, do we? I don't want to miss any of the benefits of the grace of God in my life. And so I'm very attentive when I read this verse because I don't want to miss God's grace. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. The Bible says that if you're not careful and I'm not careful, we can let a bitter root spring up, and a bitter root starts with a bitter seed. When you take a seed, and it's, a, it's a, an appropriate, it has life in it at some level, there's, 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 it's, it's a vital seed, and you plant it into the ground, it's just a matter of time before that seed will germinate and produce a plant, and the plant will produce fruit. And when you get hurt and anger and all kind of pain and disappointment inside of you and you don't deal with it, that seed produces a, 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 a plant that produces bitter fruit that defiles you and defiles other people around you. Let me show you again how serious this is as we take a look at a story from the Old Testament. Let me tell you a quick story. Most of you will remember a king by the name of David. Everybody remember King David, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, wrote psalms like this. 
David had a bunch of kids, and let me talk about his children just for a moment. He had a son by the name of Amnon, another son by the name of Absalom, and a daughter by the name of Tamar. These were half-brothers and sisters. Amnon was a, was a wicked guy. And Amnon developed an attraction to his half-sister Tamar. You can read about this in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 13. He develops this attraction toward Tamar. He fell in lust with her, not love, but in lust with her. And eventually Amnon seduced her in a way where he raped her. It was a terrible moment in the history of King David's family. It was rape in the family, half-brother with half-sister, a rape scenario. Absalom, the full brother of Tamar, became very, very angry about this, as rightly he should have been, and he wanted to take vengeance on Amnon because he felt like Amnon deserved great punishment, and he became very, very angry, obviously, about this. And would you agree with me? He had a right to be angry, right? Did Absalom have a right to be angry? No question about it, because what he wanted was he wanted justice to be done. His sister had been raped by his half-brother. He is demanding, he's desiring some kind of justice. And he's feeling it himself, wanting to take it out on his own brother, but he's also wanting his father to do something about it. And David does nothing to handle, to deal with the situation at all. In fact, let's take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 21 and 22 from the message paraphrase. King David heard the whole story and was enraged, but he didn't discipline Amnon. That is, he did nothing to address the situation. David doted on him because he was his firstborn. Absalom quit speaking to Amnon, not a word, whether good or bad, because he hated him for violating his sister Tamar. Now, the story continues on, and there's a lot of intrigue and scandal that happens in the family history here, but what I want you to see right now is this. Absalom, because of his anger and a right kind of anger, ended up giving a place to the devil, and because of that, it birthed rebellion inside of him, and that rebellion in his heart ultimately led him to, to, to take or attempt to take the kingdom away from his very own father, David, and ends up in him losing his life at an early age. He comes to an early end because bitterness ruled his life. Now, was Amnon right in the situation? No, Amnon was, 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 was a messed up guy. He was a bad fella. He was, in fact, what we might call a villain. No question about it. But what I want you to see was, wasn't just this guy that dealt with it, but this guy had to deal with it too. And unfortunately, he didn't handle it the right way. And sometimes injustices can happen and will happen in your life, and you will want justice to transpire, and the kind of justice you feel like you need will not happen. But at the same time, God says, I want you to watch your your heart. I want to make sure, make sure that you don't allow stuff to get in you that will destroy you and destroy the people around you. Absalom lost his life because of bitterness. And in this room today, in our Frederick campus today, there are people that are sitting in our worship centers this morning, and that's where you are. Something's happened in your life that maybe was very unjust, something that hurt you in a very deep way, something that pains you, caused by another person. And you've been brewing and stewing about it for a long, long time. And it's formed a seed on the inside of you that's affecting you and potentially and most likely affecting the people around you as well. 
And God brought you here this weekend to say, you know what? I want to pluck in, pluck down that root out of your life so that you can go free. That No longer you'll have to suffer the consequences of a bitter root inside of you. Aren't you glad you serve a God like that who can do that kind of stuff in us? It's wonderful to know that. But he brought you here this weekend for that purpose. I'm going to show you again how serious it is. This is serious stuff, really serious. When the Apostle Paul wrote the little book in the New Testament called Philippians, he was in a Roman prison, and he's going to send this letter to the church at Philippi, a church that he had founded. And it's going to be a really short book, so he doesn't get to say everything he wants to say. It's sort of like a quick letter to them, communicating the most essential things that he could in a short letter. There are only four chapters in the book of Philippians. You can read it very, very quickly. And so I think you would agree with me that if you're about to write a short book to people that you love and you want to say the things that are most on your heart, you would be very, very careful, very judicious about what you included in the letter and what you left out of the letter, right? You're going to say the most important things that need to be said, correct? Because you only have a certain amount of space and time to say what you want to say. And so Paul, what we learn about Paul from this letter is we learn the kind of things that were really on his heart when he wrote the letter. These are the things that are the most important things to him. And in chapter 4, verse number 2, we see a part of Paul's concern about two ladies in the church there in Philippi. He writes these words and says, And now I want to plead with those two dear women, Euodius and Syntyche, please, please, with the Lord's help, quarrel no more, be friends again. Paul could not rest and could not conclude his letter without including the names of two women in the church at Philippi who are fighting with one another. It was so serious that Paul said, I've got to take a little bit of time out of this short letter to call your names and to tell you you need to fix this relationship because it's not only going to damage you as the potential of damaging other people around you. And I am begging you, I am pleading with you, please, please, God is willing to help you stop your quarreling and find reconciliation. It's important to Jesus also. He gave us this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. He said, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Do you see what he said? Jesus said, You go to the temple to worship, and you bring your gift to the altar. And while you're about to offer your gift to God, you remember that, you, that someone has something against you or you have something against someone. Leave your gift right there and go be reconciled to the person and then come back and offer your gift. Why? Because you're trying to worship with something broken in your life. And true worship can't happen unless we worship in spirit and in what? And in truth, in spirit and truth. And so if we're covering up offense and covering up bitterness and anger in our hearts and trying to worship at the same time, it makes our worship ineffective. It doesn't mean that we're not worshiping at any level, but it means there's something missing in the fullness of our worship. And some of the reasons why we don't connect with God as we want to at times is because we're holding on to stuff inside of us. And Jesus said it's so important. It is so important if you're at the altar and you remember that there's a broken relationship that needs to be fixed, you leave that gift there and go fix it so that that's restored. Then you can come back and worship God in fullness. That's how serious it is. And so the Bible teaches us very clearly all through Scripture. We see that relationship stress and relationship damage and hurt and pain, it's inevitable. People are going to experience it. It happens in life because we're human and because we're imperfect and because we're sinful. It's going to happen. 
but it is never to be ignored. It's something to be worked on. It's something to be fixed. When you recognize it, it's important to fix it as quickly as you possibly can. The second thing that we must understand about fixing broken relationships is that much relationship damage can be repaired. What I mean by that is this. When you have a torn relationship, you have to ask the question, can this be repaired? Just like if you break anything, one of the questions you ask before you replace it is you say, can we repair it? Can it be fixed? I, for some reason, recently, my, one of my, my iPads created a, had a crack in the screen. I didn't drop it. Thank God. I have dropped them before. But it had a crack in the screen. And my, my, so I took it to the store to say, you know what? What do we do here? Can we repair this? Or does that need to be replaced? And in that situation, it was something they decided to replace because it was a, a problem in the manufacturing of it. But the point being was that the first question is, can you repair it? Is it repairable? And in every relationship of life, when there's a problem, what you ought to ask is, is this repairable? And what I want you to know today that most of the time, relationship issues are repairable. Not in, not in every situation. Sometimes the trust has been so violated and the relationship has been so torn that probably they, it was, it's not fixable in the sense of two people coming back together again and having the relationship they once had. But it doesn't mean you can't fix it in your own heart. What I'm saying is I'm talking about together. Is it repairable? And I want you to know today that most of the relationship tears in your life can be fixed. Isn't that good news? Because if they were not fixable, you would go through life with a string of broken relationships. Because as soon as something comes up that's a problem, well, there that one goes. Okay, there's another. Well, there that one goes. There are a lot of people that live that way. They have a strewn a, in their wake or all kind of people that they haven't taken time to mend relationships with. And what I want you to see is that God, by His mercy and power, gives us the capacity and pathway to be able to mend broken relationships. Isn't that good news also? That relationships that are broken can be fixed. Many of them can. Some may not be able to be fixed, but many, most can be. As I was sort of thinking about this message, and several weeks ago, actually a number of weeks ago now, prepared this message that I'm preaching today. I was asking God to show me, how can I communicate this to you? How can I help you? Because one of the things I wanted you to get, get hold of today in your heart was some hope that some broken relationships in your life actually can be fixed, they can be mended. And I was struggling to find a way. How can I communicate this, God, to your people to help us all to get this hope in our heart that we need? And, and in a flash, God just took me back to the story of one of the greatest repairers in all the Bible. His name is Nehemiah. There's no repair greater than the Old Testament character of Nehemiah. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about him uh, and, and historically for a moment and then bring this into the application of our relationships. Nehemiah is a very significant figure in the progression of Old Testament history. Let me give you a little history lesson this morning. That'd be okay? You ready for a history lesson, right? Okay, it'll take us a couple of hours, but we're going to do this, okay? No, just a few minutes. Very quick history lesson. The children of Israel, Israel as a nation, eventually became a divided kingdom in the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, southern kingdom named Judah, northern kingdom known as Israel. And this divided kingdom, uh, God told them, if you don't pay attention to me, what's going to happen? You're going you're gonna to end up in, in, in trouble. 
And to the southern kingdom Judah, God said, if you don't stop your idolatry and straighten up and come back to worship me with all your heart, then what's going to happen is you're going to go into captivity. You're going to be sent off for 70 years to a place called Babylon. Babylon was one of the world leaders during that time. And so God says, what's going to happen to you? And indeed, because they did not repent, uh, God allowed a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, to come in and capture the city of Jerusalem and Judah. And they actually went into captivity for 70 long years. And God was punishing them, disciplining them for their disobedience and idolatry. 70 years in captivity. At the end of 70 years, God raised up a king by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus, by the way, was a Persian because the Persians had now conquered the Babylonians. And so the Persian king Cyrus came on the scene. And he gives an edict as he begins his, his, uh, his administration that all the Jews living in now Persia, Babylon, Persia, were free to go back home and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so he allowed them to go back and rebuild their temple. And the Bible tells us that about 50,000 Jews left Persia, Babylon, and went back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. It was a great event, a wonderful thing that happened as they go back to rebuild the temple. They show up there and they rebuild the temple, and so the temple is constructed in about a 20-year period of time time. Took about 20 years to get it functioning as it needed to function, but finally the temple is set up again, and people are worshiping. But something was still wrong in Jerusalem. While they had a functioning temple, the rest of the city was still in ruins, and the walls of the city that protected the city were still down. They were not functional walls, and so because of that, anybody could come in, any enemy could come in at any point in time and raid them and destroy them. So they were very, very vulnerable. They had a functioning temple, but a lot of ruins around them. They were worshiping God, but in the midst of worshiping God, they were worshiping Him among the ruins. That describes a lot of Christians who have a relationship with God, but when you look at their lives, there's still a lot of ruin around them, a lot of broken stuff around them. And so that's exactly what transpired. And so they go on like this, worshiping in this temple with the ruins around them for 70 more years. They're living in this mess, mess all around them. And finally, somebody in Jerusalem says, this is not right. We need to fix this mess that we're in. We need some help. And so a delegation of Jews went from Jerusalem back up into Persia to the Persian king, and they appealed to a man by the name of Nehemiah, who was a Jew now serving the Persian king as a cupbearer, and they go to Nehemiah, and they tell Nehemiah the story of this ruined city. The temple's working, Nehemiah, but the city is a mess. The walls are broken down. We're vulnerable. We need some help. We need somebody that can help us rebuild the city. The temple's rebuilt, but our city is not rebuilt. Can you help us? And Nehemiah was deeply touched. In his heart, he knew that God was calling him to help rebuild that city, to rebuild it so it could function as the city needed to function again. And so he goes to the king as the cupbearer of the king. Nehemiah goes to the Persian king and makes a request to be able to go and help the people of God in Jerusalem rebuild the, the, the city. Note, notice the story here as it transpires. Let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 3. This is his appeal to the king. But I replied, Sir, why shouldn't I be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been burned down. Chapter 2, verse 16. He was given permission to go to rebuild the walls from the rubble. And notice what he does when he gets there. He says, But now I told them, as the people of Jerusalem, you know full well the tragedy of our city. It lies in ruins, and its gates are burned. Let us rebuild. Say that phrase with me. Let us rebuild. Come on, everybody together. Let us 
let us rebuild. That's a key phrase. Let us rebuild. In other words, we're going to change this. It's not the way it needs to be right now, but we're going to fix it. Amen? These walls are not like they're supposed to be, but we're going to rebuild them. This relationship is not what it needs to be, but we're going to rebuild it. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and rid ourselves of this disgrace. Then I told them about the desire God had put into my heart and my conversation with the king and the plan to which he had agreed. Notice chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. I'm going to bring all this back around to our relationships as we're wrapping up today. The wall was finally finished in early September, just 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated, and they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. Here's the story. Nehemiah goes back, pulls the people together, and says, let us, let us what? Let us reveal. It's a ruin right now. It's a mess. It's been like this for now 90 years plus 70 years since the, since the temple started functioning. Now, we're going to change things. We're not satisfied to let the ruins remain. We want to see God take ruins and make something glorious out of them. Amen? And so he gathers the people around, and they say, let's get to work. And so they got to work rebuilding the walls. And here's the miracle. In 52 days, something that had been in ruins for at least 70-plus years, almost actually an entire century it had been in ruins. For that period of time, now in 52 days, the entire situation was, trans, was transformed. Why? Because God helped them do what they couldn't do themselves. They saw ruins and didn't know how to fix it, but somebody stood up and said, let us rebuild, and God showed up with them, and they began to get involved in the process, and what looked like a mess, God turned around into a miracle. God specializes in taking messes and making miracles out of them. That's what He can do in your life. He can do it in your relationships. And as I was studying this passage and thinking about it in application for our message today, there were six things that came to my attention that I want to give to you that will help you to begin to turn the corner and rebuild some relationships in your life. The first thing you have to do is to do what Nehemiah did for the rebuilding process. You've got to pray and believe. You've got to start praying for the relationships that are broken in your life. If you have a broken relationship with someone, start praying about it. Start praying for yourself and praying for them and asking God to do something in that relationship that is miraculous. Listen, God answers prayers like that. And believe that God can do something. Get the doubt out of your mind and begin to believe that God can turn this relationship around. Start If you have a marriage that's broken, a marriage that's falling apart, a marriage that's in trouble, start praying for yourself and for your spouse. Not just for your spouse, but for yourself and for your spouse. Because our tendency is to pray for them. Oh, God, change them. Oh, God, fix them. Oh, God, take that rascal and turn him around, God. Either turn him around or kill him, whatever the case is, okay? And that's not the right kind of prayer. The right kind of prayer is, God, would you bless him? Would you help him? Would you help me begin to pray for the reconciliation process and believe that God can do something? Nehemiah was used by God because he was a praying man and he was a believing man. Number two, be, be willing to accept your responsibility. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But God's going to ask you to do some things here. 
He's going to ask you to do some reaching out. He's going to ask you to do some things. Then be committed to the process. See, every relationship works on the basis of commitment. No commitment, there's no trust. With commitment, there will be trust. And so commitment to the relationship communicates trust. Then cooperate. If you have a broken relationship with another person, what you want to do is find a place where the two of you can cooperate together toward a resolution. How can we get on the same page? Maybe we're not going to be on the same page right now, but at least let's get in the same book. If we're not on the same book, let's at least be in the same library. If we're not in the same library, let's get on the same block. If we're not on the same block, let's get in the same city. Let's find something that we can bring together that will allow us to start working toward reconciliation and restoration and reparation, all right? Number five, you got to work hard. Listen, relationship problems don't fix themselves. You have to put some energy and effort into them and then have patience and persistence. Listen, dear one, I will tell you that in many relationships of your life, if you will pray and believe, if you will accept responsibility, if you will commit yourself and cooperate and work hard and have some patience and persistence, you can see God work miracles in broken relationships. Just like walls in Jerusalem were rebuilt, God can rebuild things in your life. What are the practical steps for this? Let me quickly give you 10 practical steps that we can all, all can take. Let's read these together. Number one, what do you do? You put, God, I want to please you more than anything else. I'm going to make you first in my life and first in the relationship. If you want God's blessings in any realm of your life, you put him first in your life. If you want God's blessings on your marriage, you put him first in your marriage. If you want God's blessing on your finances, you put him first in your finances. If you want God's blessings on your business, you put Him first in your business. When you put God's fir- God first, then you experience His blessing that flows there. Number two, read with me. Own your part of the problem. Yes, you have a part in the problem. Okay? And you have to own it. Number three, stop villainizing or victimizing. There are exceptions to this rule. What I mean by that, there are some legitimate villains in the world. Stay away from them. There are some bad people in this world. You know that? If you discover a bad person, run from them. There are some villains that truly exist, but we oftentimes take people who really aren't villains, but we make them villains in our mind, and we make ourselves the victims. We talked a bit about this in our series. Number four, pray through. Read read with me. Pray through your hardness, hatred, and resistance to repair and rebuild, release and forgive. See, sometimes what happens is because of hurt in us, We get hard on the inside. We close our hearts toward people, don't we? And when you get hurt by someone, you say, I'm not going to let anybody hurt me again. I'm not going to let that person especially hurt me again. And you close your heart and you get really hard on the inside. And sometimes that hardness turns into hatred. And hatred is a horrible thing because it really is not so much affecting the other person as it is you. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Okay? You drink it, but you hope they die. And that's kind of the way hatred is. Bitterness gets in you, and you're kind of hoping they're dying, but it's actually killing you on the inside. And that hardness and that hatred that I've seen in so many people over the years, it just it robs you of life. It robs you of joy. It robs you of peace. And you say, well, what do I do? I feel so hard on the inside. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to help you today. If you'll get on your knees and say, God, would you soften my heart? You got to be honest with him first. You got to say, God, I'm hard. I've got some hatred inside of me that I know it really shouldn't be here. And I, I need you to soften my heart 
Yes, it's hurting. The situation has really caused me pain. But God, I want to be soft again. I want my heart to be open again. God, I want to be able to release and forgive. I don't want to hold on to this stuff for the rest of my life and let it destroy me or people around me. And when you begin to pray a prayer like that, let me tell you, God, by his Holy Spirit, one of the the symbols of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is rain. And what does rain do to hard ground? It softens it up, doesn't it? And as you just stay in the presence of God and ask him to soften your heart, let me tell you, God will send the rain of his Holy Spirit. It may not happen the first time you pray. It may not happen the second time you pray. You may have to pray through it for a week or a month or sometimes several months before the breakup inside happens. But I will tell you, you keep praying a prayer like that, God knows how to soften your heart again. Don't live, dear ones, don't live with a hard heart. Because when you have a hard heart toward people, what will happen is ultimately it will translate toward God. You'll have a hard heart toward God. And when you have a hard heart toward God, you're not open to what he wants to do in your life. The next one, read with me what the next one says. Stop attacking people. Start attacking problems together, okay? Number six, work on the resolvable, except the unresolvable. If you think that every problem in your marriage or family or, or your friendships are going to always be resolved, they're not, okay? If you think you're going to always, that somehow that a perfect marriage means that you're going to get to the place where you agree on everything, it's not going to happen, okay? That's called heaven, okay? okay? And when we finally get to heaven, that's when we'll have perfect, we'll see perfectly as we need to see, right? While we're down here on earth, we all see through a glass darkly, and so we have opinions. How many know what opinions are, okay? Right? You got your opinion, and somebody else has their opinion, and, and, and opinions clash, and so not everything's going to be resolvable. You and I have to learn to live with certain things that aren't ever really resolved because we're just different people. But there are things that can be resolved. So focus on what's resolvable and don't worry so much about the unresolvable. Number seven, practice new patterns of thinking and acting. We talked quite a bit about that. Number eight, do positive things that move your focus from the problem. This is important. What you look at is what you see. That's very profound, by the way. If you look at the weaknesses and problems in another person, what are you going to always be seeing in them? Their weaknesses and problems is all you'll ever see. Here's what we do. We spend most of our time and energy in relationships at certain points just looking at the stuff we don't like about somebody. But we don't just look at it. We get a magnifying glass out and we look at it, okay? And then it becomes huge in our mind how bad that person is and how many problems they have. And the reason is because that's all we're looking at. And not only is it all we're looking at, but we're looking at it through a magnifying glass. And just what I want to encourage you to do is just, just for a moment, just stop, stop thinking about all the bad things and find something good. You say, well, I can't, okay? Well, make up something, okay? <laughs> if you can't find anything good about a person, just... Just imagine something good about them, okay? Get your mind, because what happens, because what, we get so locked into people being all bad that we can't see good, and so we have to break that pattern. Our minds just want to go there and drive us into that mindset, and you have to break up that pattern and start your focus in another direction so you can start feeling differently. Until you change your thinking, you'll never change your feelings. So your feelings follow your thoughts. The Bible teaches us. That's why our thinking is so important, as we talked about in the first part of this year. All right, the next one be what? 
patient. Not going to happen overnight. We talked about that. Number 10, have, have faith. Believe that God can do something in the broken relationships of your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this weekend, as we've taken time to study your word, we are so grateful that you loved us enough to, when we were broken in a mess, you came down and you repaired our relationship with you, God. Through Jesus Christ, you allowed us to be reconciled to you. And you called us to learn how to live in reconciliation one with another, how to repair broken relationships. And I pray especially this morning for those that are here and those that are listening to my voice that even in this moment that they could say, yep, I've got one of those in my life. I just have never believed it could be any better. I ask it in this moment that hope would come into that heart, that faith would rise. And even like Nehemiah when he said, let us rebuild, that something would be stirred in the hearts of your people today that said, let us rebuild that relationship. Let us restore. Let us reconcile. And I pray especially, Lord, for those who've grown hard on the inside. Lord, sometimes life hurts and sometimes we do pull in. We develop calluses around our heart for protection purposes and we, we want to just sort of shut people out because we don't want to be hurt anymore. But Father, I pray that where there is that kind of hurt and hardness and especially, God, if there be any hatred in any heart today, I'm asking, Lord, that beginning this very moment that the reign of the Holy Spirit would begin to come down upon that hardened heart that person that is struggling with hatred today, God, I'm praying that in Jesus' name that you would begin to soften them and bring them to a place of release and forgiveness and tenderness before you. Take your word and deeply apply it to our lives today by the power of your Holy Spirit. For that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for today's message. I trust that you've heard something from God's word that will make a difference in your life now and forever. Maybe as you were listening to today's message, God began to speak to you about a personal relationship with Himself. You know, the most important thing we can ever establish in our life is a relationship with God, and we do that by opening our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, today is your day. It's your opportunity. And I want to lead you in a prayer right now that you can pray that will forever change your life, that will allow your name to be written in the book of life for eternity. All you need to do is simply pray this prayer with me and mean it in your heart. If you'll mean this prayer, God will hear you. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So would you pray with me right now? Whisper these words to God or speak them out right where you are. Say, Jesus, just mention his name. Say, Jesus, I admit to you today that, that I am a sinner and I'm sorry, God, for everything I've done wrong. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are God's Son, the Savior, the Redeemer. I thank you that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again. I believe in you, Jesus. And then whisper this prayer. Say, Lord, today I invite you to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, to give me a brand new start in you. I give my life to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for those that prayed that prayer with me and I ask that now they would continue to grow in you and serve you faithfully from this day forward in Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer with me, friend, I want you to know that Jesus Christ heard you, that your name has been written in that wonderful book of life and that now today you start a brand new life in Christ 
And to do so, you need some help. You need to learn how to live your life for Jesus every day. We'd like to provide for you. In fact, we have available for you some resources that you can get from our website, church-redeemer.org, that will help you to get a good start in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So again, check out the website, church-redeemer.org. Find those resources that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. If you've prayed with the pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to www.church-redeemer.org newbeginnings. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.